You're listening to Joe Radio Live. Positive and motivational content just for you. Do enjoy and share. It's time for your hit your scripture. What's up, my beautiful BSM family? 60-second Bible study. Grab a piece of paper, a pen, a Bible, and let's rock and roll. 1 John 5.14 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that we can ask anything according to His will, and He hears us, and He gives us the petitions of our heart. That is the thing that we've asked for. Let's break this down. This is the confidence that we have in Him. That means this is the sure thing. This we know for sure that we know in Him. That whatever that we ask of Him, if it's in alignment with His will, what's His will? His will is in the Bible. But if it's in alignment with His will, he hears us. We don't have to question whether or not he hears us. We don't have to double guess it. We don't have to wonder or doubt. Nope. The word says that he hears us when we ask according to his will. And not only does he hear us, family, but the Bible says that he gives us the petitions that we've asked for. So we can be sure that whenever we ask something of him in alignment with his will, even though it's for us, he hears us and he gives it to us. Woo! Powerful. Love you. Be blessed. God is awesome. Listen to this testimony. I'm Carla Pratico, and Jesus saved me in a bar. My whole life, I was really just looking for people to approve of me and looking for, like, love. I was really good at school. I was president of my high school and then went on to college and joined probably about 15 different kind of honor societies or leadership organizations. and. I really was looking just to feel important. Really agreed with the lie that unless I had this achievement, um, I really wasn't valuable. I was just looking for every avenue I could to feel important and to feel valuable. I became addicted to the achievement. I grew up in a Christian home, and I would say that I knew about Jesus on some measure. I never really believed that he cared much about me. After college, I got the apprenticeship of my like absolute dreams. I moved to New York City to work with a Fortune 500 leadership consultant. Just got very quickly caught up into the nightlife scene. All consumed with partying and drinking and promiscuous activity. By day, I was kind of walking in this dream job. And then by night, I was staying up till four in the morning at clubs. I was surrounded by so much money. You know, I'm surrounded by um, famous people. And I'm sort of like, who am I in this room? I'm a 20, you know, 22 year old. What am I even doing here? These rich men would pay for me to get into these really expensive high-end places. Even just to get through the door was $1,000, not to mention the, the bottle service and the table. I mean, it would you could easily spend five to 10 grand a night. I was drinking three or four times a week, like blackout drunk. It did help me escape kind of some of that pain that I was experiencing from just rejection and not feeling worthy and not feeling lovable. Escaping that pain was something I did with alcohol and then the promiscuity, that piece was really trying to convince myself that I was lovable. It's like, if someone will take me home, that means I must be lovable. Then you wake up in the morning and they don't even remember your name. So I had been partying at night, working during the day, and my birthday was coming up. And so I invited what I call my nighttime friends to join me for my birthday. Only one person showed up. It was so sad. 
And she ends up going home and I decide to stay at this bar by myself on my 23rd birthday. At this point, I'm like, well, I may as well find somebody to go home with. I'm talking to this guy. I'm vodka soda drunk and I hear a voice and it says, this is not your life. As soon as I heard those words, I knew they were true. It was almost as if someone had turned the lights on in the bar for me. It was like I could see clearly, even though I knew I was still drunk, and I needed to leave that bar like instantly and go find what is life, what is my life. I immediately put my drink down the guy is still probably trying to talk to me and I just walked straight out of the bar and I got in a cab and as soon as I get in the back seat, I look up front and there's actually a man and a woman. They uh, agreed to take me home despite being off duty. The woman in the front seat, she um, said something to her husband, something like, doesn't God know it? And I only caught that, you know, a couple words, but I heard the word God and I instantly knew that that voice that I had heard in the bar was God. I stuck my head through the little taxi window and I said, do you believe in God? And they start sharing the gospel with me, just telling me what Jesus thinks about me and, and how much he loves me and that he died for me. And I had heard this story before, but for, for the first time in my life, it felt like it was just for me. Like I knew he came and just like sovereignly cut through all the mess that I had made just for me. As they're, as they're talking to me, I instantly start repenting to these people. That night, everything changed. I started really looking for what my life was. I started pursuing um, who is this God person? If he could invade my life and speak to me in the middle of a Manhattan bar, what else could he do? What else was he like? I found a church. My pastor pulled me up to the front and laid hands on me. And I immediately felt just fire course through my entire body. And I start hearing myself praying in a language that I didn't understand. I couldn't have produced this on my own strength. This was extremely um, specifically a line in the sand with my walk with God. I was instantly delivered of cursing. I haven't had a sip of alcohol since that day. I stopped sleeping around. No one even had to tell me to stop sleeping around. I just didn't have the, the desire for it. I really just found myself constantly wanting to, to pray for people, to see the city of New York know him. God never, ever asked me to earn his love. It was never about the doing. It was never about getting it right. The, when we actually believe and know that we're loved and that we were first created and designed to be the object of God's affection, you start doing the things that align with his heart. There's a difference between the peace that the world thinks is peace and the peace that only Jesus can give you.
that's one of the greatest gifts that I experienced when he saved me. Beautiful story. We celebrate what God has done in Carla's life. You heard her saying that in that Manhattan bar, it was like a light went on. Well, Jesus said he is the light of the world. Whoever follows me, Jesus said, will never walk in darkness. And Carla has experienced that. You know, why do we get in these addictions? Why do we get in this bondage? You know, she, Carla said it herself, we want to escape. We want to escape something, some emotional pain, some mental turmoil. We've been the victim of something, or maybe we've just made some bad choices. We desire escape. And then sometimes that uh, drug use or alcohol use leads to greater anxiety, which leads to dependence, addiction. That leads to more anxiety. It's just this vicious cycle. And then we want to escape from the escape method we've designed. And then oftentimes we'll feel like, you know, God won't accept me for who I am. And we have an enemy who wants to tell us there's no hope for you. This darkness you're in is here to stay. But no, Scripture teaches us we have a loving Savior, Savior Jesus Christ, who will not turn you away. He will not reject your cry for help. And it's not just help to change our circumstances. It's help for our soul. God did not design you to be in bondage. He did not design you, create you to be trapped in addiction. We often believe the lies of the enemy, and, and our enemy tells us that God will just see us in our state by the bad choices we've made and leave us there to rot. No. Not only does God desire to change our life and make us more and more and more like Jesus, we don't even have to change before calling out to him. We don't have to clean ourselves up and change our actions and then go before Jesus and say, I need you. No, Jesus takes us the way we are, and he changes our behaviors. He's going to put a new spirit in us. We're a new creation, Paul says. We become new men, new women, because we are now centered, our foundation on Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit can do amazing things. So I'm here to tell you, Jesus can handle your problem. Jesus can handle your addiction. None of this is too big for him. He's designed you to have life. And when you cry out to him, he responds in love. Scripture points to a Savior who runs toward us. He runs toward us. So don't believe the lies of your enemy who tells you Jesus doesn't love you and can do nothing with you. No. Today, you're not watching this by accident. You didn't see Carla's story by accident. The Holy Spirit is drawing you to himself today. And if you're willing to surrender who you are to Jesus Christ, he will spend eternity with you in heaven. And your circumstances will begin to change because your heart is going to change. I encourage you now, if you don't know Christ as your Savior and you feel this trap, pray with me now. Father God, it's in Jesus' name I pray. You know the mess I have made in my life through decisions. You also know what I've been through and endured because of other people's actions upon me, where I've been a victim. Father, I can't do life on my own anymore. I don't want to escape through drug use or alcohol use or through relationships with other people, trying to find acceptance through others. Jesus, today, I base my foundation in you, my identity in you, and Jesus, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting what I've heard about you, that you desire to accept 
and love the unlovable. And Jesus, today I make you my Lord and Savior. Teach me now how to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. I encourage you to give us a call. Tell someone you've prayed, 800-700-7000. Hello, I'm Gordon Robertson. Thanks for watching the video. Be sure to like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell for more encouraging videos like this one. Welcome to the 700 Club Interactive Family, and God bless you. Years ago, many, many years ago, in fact, 1972, I was sitting at my desk at about 4.30 in the morning at the headquarters of the Commander-in-Chief of the United States Pacific Fleet, arranging the information that had come in over the last 24 hours into a logical order so that we could prepare a briefing for the Admiral and his staff, which would take place later that morning. Among the papers... I found on my desk was a document entitled Operation Majority, and it was not the entire paperwork involving this operation, but was merely a synopsis of the operation and projects contained under it. One of these projects was called Project Red Light. The purpose, according to this document, was to back-engineer captured extraterrestrial technology for adaptation into the United States space program. Now, I have since come to believe that the extraterrestrial portion of all of this is nonsense, but that the technology is real, is real. I believe that many of us were shown these documents over the years so that later we would talk about it. I mean, how can you keep the existence of extraterrestrials, if they were real, a secret? And how could anyone keep quiet knowing that they had seen documentation, official government documents, labeled top secret, that expressed that these extraterrestrials were real and had visited this earth. I wanted to know just how true all of this was, and I began a program of research to find out if extraterrestrials were real. The first thing I did was collect every bit of documentation that I could find, both from the Freedom of Information Act, from the receipt search of others, from books that had been printed on the subject of UFOs, and, of course, through my network of friends in the intelligence community. What I discovered was amazing. What I discovered, ladies and gentlemen, is that there has been a plan in existence since about 1917, and probably before that, to create an artificial extraterrestrial threat to this earth in order to create a one-world totalitarian socialist government. One of the first documents that I found in my search was this one, the Imperial Japanese Mission 1917, a record of the reception throughout the United States of the special mission headed by Viscount Ishii. And when the Imperial Japanese Mission was uh, in New York City, they had a dinner, and some pretty famous people spoke at this dinner. 
One of them was John Dewey. John Dewey is the father of our failing, disastrous public education system. Here's what he said. Listen very carefully. John Dewey, professor of philosophy in Columbia University, who was the next speaker, was listened to with great intentness. He said, quote, Someone remarked that the best way to unite all the nations on this globe would be an attack from some other planet. In the face of such an alien enemy, people would respond with a sense of their unity of interest and purpose. Unquote. Now, bear in mind, folks, that's 1917. One of the next documents that I found, and I found quite a few, but one that's pretty important is called a report from Iron Mountain. The Probability and Desirability of Permanent Peace. Now, I encourage you to find this book wherever you can find it. I don't know where you can get it, but find it. Page 66. Credibility, in fact, lies at the heart of the problem of developing a political substitute for war. This is where the space race proposals, in many ways so well suited as economic substitutes for war, fall short. The most ambitious and unrealistic space project cannot of itself generate a believable external menace. It has been hotly argued that such a menace would offer the last best hope of peace, etc., by uniting mankind against the danger of destruction by creatures from other planets or from outer space. Experiments have been proposed to test the credibility of an out-of-our-world invasion threat. And it continues on another page. Nevertheless, an effective political substitute for war would require alternate enemies, some of which might seem equally far-fetched in the context of the current war system. It may be, for instance, that gross pollution of the environment can eventually replace the possibility of mass destruction by nuclear weapons as the principal substitute for war. Are you beginning to get the message, folks? Poisoning of the air and of the principal sources of food and water supply is already well advanced, and at first glance would seem promising in this respect. It constitutes a threat that can be dealt with only through social organization and political power. But from present indications, it will be a generation to a generation and a half before environmental pollution, however severe, will be sufficiently menacing on a global scale to offer a possible basis for a solution. However unlikely some of the possible alternate enemies we have mentioned may seem, we must emphasize that one must be found of credible quality and magnitude if a transition to peace is ever to come about without social disintegration. It is more probable, in our judgment, that such a threat will have to be invented rather than developed from unknown conditions. Ladies and gentlemen, they have created so many alternate enemies in order to bring about their one-world totalitarian socialist state that we don't know which enemy to believe is real or is false, or whether to just toss them all out on their ears. And I think that that is probably going to be the best solution. Disarmament is no accident. All of these bills in Congress to take away our weapons is no accident. The intentional environmental pollution of our lakes, rivers, streams, oceans, forests, everything is no accident, as you just heard. These things were planned many, many years ago. All the bombardment of the public with movies about flying saucers in the 50s right after the United Nations Treaty was signed and the UN Participation Act was pushed through Congress 
and all of the incidents since that have convinced the majority of the American people that flying saucers are real and extraterrestrials exist and that flying saucers are from an extraterrestrial origin. This is being promulgated in many ways by television commercials, in the movies, in the newspapers, by creating incidents either real or imagined. I believe because of my research and because of the extensive documentation that I've found and that is in my book that this whole scenario has been created to give us an artificial alien threat from outer space. During the Reagan administration, he made six speeches specifically talked about a threat from outer space by some other species from some other planet. Six, ladies and gentlemen. Why would the president repeat the same thing six times, tagged on to the ends of speeches by him? The speechwriters did not put that in the speech. Ronald Reagan added it himself. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. This was a powerful suggestion to implant into the minds of the people of the world that there really is a threat from some other species from some other planet to this earth. Now, you people out there have been ignoring the UFO phenomenon for too long. It has all the earmarks of the most successful, most sophisticated mind control operation in the history of the world, and you are ignoring it. What better way to implement a plan to bring about a one-world government than to create, create the possibility in the minds of the people of the world that we are being threatened from some other species, from some other planet, and do it in a way that if anybody questions it or challenged it or wants to talk about it publicly, that they are ridiculed. And the ultimate goal is to make the earth look very small, to present the people of the world with an external threat to this earth, a superior race from some other planet, vastly superior to us in intellect, philosophy, and technology, in order to cause the dissolution of nation-states, the dissolution of all existing religions, and the formation of the world totalitarian socialist government.